Today's guest I've known for a very long time. As it turns out, we actually went to elementary school together for a little while, and then eventually we started working together in many different bands, and we've done live gigs and recording sessions together, and I was even his drumline instructor for a little while. So we we have a lot of really fun history with each other, and I would say a majority of our history has been playing country music, and I think that he plays it as well as anybody that I've ever had the chance to work with. So today I'm happy to have my buddy, Mr. Kevin Albertson, on the show. Hey, Kevin, how are you, man? Man, man, man. Man, it's so, so good to see you, brother. So good to see you too, man. I miss you, and uh, I got to see you not too long ago. We got to play together one evening, but it's, you know, just makes me want to play with you some more. It's just, uh, it's good to see you. And of course, the, the people that are probably going to be listening to this are like, why you keep saying good to see you? Well, I'm currently staring at Brad right now <laughs> on, on, my, on my webcam. So yes, I, I do see you. Yeah, this is uh, so through the marvels of technology, Kevin and I are getting to actually look at each other. So thankfully for the rest of you, you don't have to see our faces and you only get to listen to us. <laughs> so I want to start at the beginning. Uh, I know, and for the folks that don't know, your dad, Cotton Albertson, uh, was and is a really great drummer. And I was curious about his history, and what kind of influence did that have on you as a drummer? Dad's been drumming a long, long time, and he he was in marching band and did that whole era that you and I both had the pleasure of enjoying. But then probably the highlight for my dad was, and, and I actually just wrote all this down, but uh, Lanier Land. Folks probably remember old Lanier Land up in North Forsyth. Up, what was off of Jotham Down Road? Jotham Down Road, that's oh, right. Jotham Down. Yeah, <laughs> name for a road. But so dad did that from 73 to 76. And if you'll... Bear with me for a minute. I'm going to give you some names you may or may not know that he may have worked with. Um, Buck Owens, Barbara Mandrell, Jerry Lee Lewis, Marty Robbins, Jerry Reed, Billy Crash Craddock. Um, those are some people that mm, they, they've done well. I've heard of a few of those folks. Wow, what a list, huh? Good yeah, and I mean, there's plenty more, but you, you asked me what kind of influence that had on me. Well, it's uh, obviously... My, my drumming, uh, I never had any formal like lessons or training, but you know, I was just God-given talent, born with it. But uh, just getting to hear Dad talk about that that part of his life was was just inspiring to me, and it it just made me want to be the best country drummer I could be, you know, sure. and and try to fill my dad's shoes. Um, and it's just um, what what Dad got to do was an yeah, you know, I mean that dude. That was three years of his life just schmoozing with like big names, and um, th- that was uh, that was definitely something that I was proud for him. Of course, I wasn't born. I was born in '79. He did that for '73 to '76. But you know, uh, I, it was just such a such a cool thing. You know, being being um, uh, hearing him tell those stories and being his uh, obviously a son. I, <laughs> clearly, I'm, I'm his son. But um, you know, just. Hearing the stories and everything that he got to do was, it was inspiring to me. It made me want to possibly try to, you know, continue on his legacy. You know, um, it, it, it really helped me grow a lot and want to do better. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was curious, who all, do you know of any of those players were, that were in the band with him at that time? Yeah, I know a few. Uh, Raphael Picklesimer, his sister Latrell, uh, Barney West, 
Uh, Bill Picklesheimer was the dad, um, and there was a couple others that, that I that I, I I don't know the names of, but they, I mean they were the house band for those years. But that, those are the only ones that I know. Um, a lot of people around that South County Coal Mountain area know the Picklesheimers, and um, they were they were a pretty big name. I've heard that name my entire life. Uh, I remember my dad talking about how talented they all were. They could play all these different instruments, and they had a family band. And yeah, I've heard they were just incredible. Yeah, I, I remember Dad saying one time they they all went to a, that same group of musicians went to a some bar up in North Georgia and. This was one of those that if you didn't have a gun when you went in, they'd give you one at the door. <laughs> yeah. And Dad said he had a he had a thirty eight in his stick bag. The bass player Raphael, they called him Rat. He looked like a rat. <laughs> um, he had a Mac ten in his coat pocket. Latrell, the keyboard player, she had a I think she had a three fifty seven in her in her uh, piano stool. And I'm just like, good God, Dad, where y'all play at? He said we wow. sat up behind chicken wire. I'm like. <laughs> Man, were y'all on the Roadhouse movie? I've heard all kinds of crazy stories about the people that preceded us playing music. I I have a friend uh, who played in a band, uh, and every, let's say, Thursday night, they had pudding wrestling at the bar. <laughs> and, <laughs> and apparently, years after his gig ended, he was changing his bass drum heads and took the, the rims off. And there was just dried up chocolate pudding from where it had <laughs> flown around <laughs> during I'm pudding sorry, wrestling. That's, that's funny, right there. I just, I just can't even imagine. Needless to say, that type of stuff stopped before we got into the game. So, thank God. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's probably, it's probably best that that we didn't get to experience any of that. Well, well, um, I, I do have a funny story about about Dad's Lanierland days. They were playing for Conway Twitty and his drummer was named Pork Chop. He weighed uh, right at 400 and something pounds. And back in the day, uh, well, dad still has these drums set in 19. I think the date's right. I think there's 71 Ludwigs. Dad had eight mounted toms and a floor tom. Of course, his kick drum. And back then, taking the bottom heads off the drums was what they did in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. All the bottom drum heads were off, uh, and the, even the kick drum head was was off. But anyway, Pork Chop they opened up, and then Conway Tweedy got to bit his thing. Pork Chop, you know, played the show, and then um, Dad had to wait till the very end of the evening before he could go get all of his stuff because they were the house band. Dad always brought his gear in, set it up. So when he got they got done, and everybody went to the bus. Dad walked up on stage and was going to get his drums, and walked up there, and every single drum head was busted. Every single oh one of them. <laughs> so of course, you know, this was mid seventies and dad's like, Well, I I need to go confront this guy and see if I can maybe get a little bit of money or see what you know, the guy probably had some kind of a head endorsement. I don't know if they did that back then, but at least had some heads on the bus. But so dad went walked behind well, they parked the buses and went and knocked on the door and some guy came to the door and said, Yeah, can I help you? And dad said, Yeah, it's pork chop on the bus. <laughs> yes. Yeah, hang on one second. So Pork Chop finally came and said, yeah, can I help you? He says, hey, man, he said, you busted all my drum heads. He said, what you going to do about it? He said, not a damn thing. It's time for it. <laughs> like, Lord. Okay. All right. Well, okay. Okay. Yeah, I was thinking, you, you said he was a big boy, and I'm thinking most people are don't get the name Pork Chop unless 
they uh they're a little bit larger that's yeah. so funny yeah. my my linear land story is that i was playing the eagle 106 birthday party at lanier land and we were outside the park playing before the don williams and gene watson show one night and they set us up on the side of the venue, just outside the fence, where people would come and gather before they came in with their tickets. And where we were set up, it was right by the gate where the tour bus would pull in. So we're right in the middle of a song, and this Silver Eagle drives down the hill and starts turning. Well, because of the angle of it, they couldn't get a good turn to come in the gate and the door swings open and there's Gene Watson standing there in his bus and he looks at us and he goes, damn it. Boom. And slams the bus door. (laughs) We're like, well, all right, buddy. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. Gene. Did you go to your dad's gigs a lot growing up? Did you, did you, for me, part of the allure of, the music thing when I was a kid was that I enjoyed the whole setting up the equipment and that whole part of it as much as the music part of it. Did you hang around when all that stuff was going on? Man, I, I, I did. And, and we were talking about that the other day with, I think your mom and dad were actually talking about that. Like I would just beg him to go. Uh, and of course there were a lot of places that, you know, we couldn't go due to our age because it was a private party or, you know, uh, what have you. But, yeah, when I could go, just the whole routine of helping him, you know, pull up to the gig and getting out of the the van and walking up and scoping out the stage because you always got to go see how much room you, you need to set up all your gear for the whole band. And then, you know, just helping him take all the cases and um you know, take all the drums out. And I was like you, man. I was just, I was dad's helper. And, you know, he had hard shell cases and, you know, I'm strapping me. Here you go. Here's Tom one time, dude. You know, and it was just, um, but those were memories and, and, uh, times that I will, you know, cherish for the rest of my life. Um, and he just being able to see him in that element, uh, you know, I was playing then too, uh, a little bit. But, you know, just seeing him up there, I'm like, man, they're having so much fun. And they would actually, Dad would let me, he let me get up and play a couple of tunes. I think I played, get up and play Johnny Be Good and Wipeout. Like, okay. asking a drummer to play Wipeout is like asking a piano player, hey, can, can you play Last Date? Yeah, you know? exactly. Or can you play Great Balls of Fire? You know, can you? <laughs> yeah. Sh- sure. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Free bird. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That triggered another little airline story about Jerry Lee Lewis, and, and then we'll we'll go a different route after this. But Dad said Jerry Lee was at Lynn Airland one night, and Jerry Lee brought just a massive band and had a huge horn section. And Dad said that he always, no matter when he came there, he would always set something on fire or break something. <laughs> and they try. I can't remember if he said that they either traveled with a baby grand piano or they rented it from somebody. But I'll never forget this story um, that Dad told me. He said it was towards the end of the night. Jerry Lee was drunk. Imagine that. Um, and he had already broken all four legs off the piano stool, and they were out in the audience somewhere. So he was standing up playing, and Dad said he had a killer horn section. And I don't know what t- what tune they were playing, but he said the baby grand piano was on, uh, you know, the, the casters, the, the wheels. Mm-hmm. And um, he said they were playing a tune. and said he got to pounding on the piano, and he was pounding on it, and he started pushing it. 
and he was going towards his horn section. And those guys were up there, you know, just blowing, just, just pounding. And he backed them into a corner, and he said they were up against the wall. And he said Jimmy Lee had the piano, and they were just, they had to hold their horns up because they had nowhere to go. And I'm just like. He was crazy. He was crazy. It's a bloody merry morning, baby, let me without warning sometime in the night. So I'm flying down Houston, getting hurt. So, like me, you went to Midway Elementary School. I, I went all the way through sixth grade, but you started there, and then you transferred. What grade were you in? So, yeah, I went there for a short time. We lived in South County for just a, a very short part of my life, and I only went to kindergarten there. I didn't even tell you who my teacher was. Um, and then we moved to, to Fulton County, and then I went to Northwestern Elementary, and then from there went to Milton, and then or no, went from Northwestern to Haines Bridge. And- Haines Bridge Middle into Milton. When did you start? Because uh, I know you were in a the school music program. What grade did you start doing percussion at school? Yeah, so I I believe that that was, I believe I started in fourth grade is, is when I actually started. Of course, I was playing obviously before then, but actually starting to learn to read music um, and to, you know, play, play. Um, mm-hmm. was fourth grade, you know, um, and then carried it on out through yeah. the rest of the school year. I'm assuming with your dad playing drums, I guess there was a drum set at home, and you started playing some at home. Drum set at home, well. I actually had one. Uh, my first drum, real drum kit that I got. Of course, all of us that grew up playing drums, and I'm sure you probably have pictures of this too, is getting, you know, you get the old plastic drum kit with, a you know, fake drum shells. But, like, I remember getting my first real drum kit it was a ruther r-e-u-t-h-e-r a ruther wow i don't even i don't think i've ever heard of that brand before yeah i I got a picture i'll I'll text it to you but it had one mounted tom in the shell you know and it had the little the little pig to come out and the tom set on it um and then a snare and a kick there was no floor tom and then the cymbal came out of the other side of the the kick drum shell uh and i think i think i had hi-hats too and maybe a Maybe a crash symbol that was just a hand-me-down piece of junk, but um, <laughs> I, I had that kit in my room, and so, um, and of course, the school also was like, "Hey, we have rentals available if you want to rent a drum." Uh, I, I never did that because when when I did start playing, I, I made sure you know, you know me, and and I know you do this too. We we take care of our gear. Mm-hmm. And I always made sure that I had a I had a practice snare drum, and then I also had like my concert snare drum. Yeah, in a case with a practice pad on top of it, and the stand went in the in right. the case, and your sticks went in there, and your songbook. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the little Ludwig carrying case. Yeah, yeah. I, that plastic molded thing. Yeah, yep. my first 
I guess real snare drum that I ever had. Uh, my mom rented rented from Ken Stanton Music and Roswell that got that from me. And then my first drum set that I ever got, we went and bought it at. Do you remember Peachtree Salvage on Highway Nine? Yes. You know you you would go in there and you never know what you would find in there. Oh, and lo and behold, one day there was a a nice little shell package in there of a kit and. Um, bought that that was the the first set i ever got the same way i'm sure i have some pictures somewhere of of the the first kit and pl i was playing along with albums i'm sure you did the same thing putting headphones on playing along with records and then you went to milton high school and um and then you got to be in a really great school music program there i mean milton you guys had a great band program when we had you were a there fantastic band program um uh, uh you know, after I left Northwestern, obviously I, I did band. Like we we went K through five, and then six through eight, and then nine through twelve. Um, six through eight was was Haynesbridge Middle School, and I can I carried on band there. Uh, and and that actually progressed a lot in middle school because trial, you know, all state band. Um, and then they started introducing jazz band. Um, and of course I was in both of those and and loved it. Um, and then. During that during that middle school era, I actually um, I think I went over to the high school actually because I I was starting to we, we actually did a thing like when we were in eighth grade we could kind of do some um, some organic stuff to where the eighth graders would would go and hang out with the marching band at the high school and see how that's all done and and I I hit it off with some guys on the drum line uh, and then you know after drum line season. That's uh, when the musicals started happening, and they would have a live band for the musicals. And I think I went and auditioned for uh, for one of those. It might have been Little Shop of Horrors or something like that. So I actually got to experience that whole musical thing too. And that man, that really uh, you got to read a book. Yes. It's it's a whole different experience as a musician playing in the pit for a show. Yeah. Um, all the years I worked at Wesleyan, um, they had a live orchestra for mid all middle school and high school shows. I, I usually played drums or bass for all of those, and what an experience! And yeah, it's all reading. I yeah. mean, it's it's yeah. it's great experience though. Yeah, it's a great experience. Um, but to, to touch on what you said about about Milton, yes, man, the uh, the band program there was was top notch. We were a um, we were a, a six quad a school. We were a large school had a very large band. I mean, we weren't like a Lasker or a Walton or a Pope, but we still had gosh two fifty plus maybe yeah. easy. Um, and the drum line, I think at one time, Brad. I think I think we were marching. I think we had either six or seven snares, three quads, and then I think we had six bases. And of course, the, the front ensemble or the pit, as people called it, uh, was just you know from thirty yard line to thirty yard line. Yeah, you know it was just it was massive, and we had a really really good drum line, and we had. Got a good teacher too. Well, I don't know about that, but it, it, I can tell you it was a good drum line. I'm a few years older than you, I, so I graduated from high school in '95. I decided that I was going to I was going to take a year off before going to college because I had made some good connections doing some drum line stuff, and I was like, I think I'm going to stick around and teach, do some marching band percussion ensemble. So I taught at South Forsyth High School. Roswell, Cass High School in Cartersville, and then 
I can't remember how it happened, but I got a call about working with you guys because the other drum instructor had left. So I came in at the beginning of the season and uh, I was working with a bunch of drum lines and they were all very good drum lines. But man, the first rehearsal, (laughs) I stood in front of you guys and you started playing your exercises. I was just blown away with how good you guys sounded. And it was... It was a great experience for me to get to work with a group as good as you guys were. I mean, it was great. You know, man, I, I'm 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 still a just a, a drum core just nerd. Like I love DCI. You love DCI. Like to to the to this day, we still probably send a couple of videos. You know, not, I don't I don't say every week or so but you know every month or so i'll get an email or a text from you and say hey man check out this this drum line like the carolina crown or the blue devils or cadets or you know somebody like that but that whole part of my life and that whole like drum line and playing country music dude that is completely different like um how can i say this like you need dynamics when you play and you need dynamics playing country music but just the whole structure and the way that everything is put together on a drum line ensemble where you have, you know, six, seven, eight snares and four quads, quints, whatever they're playing, and six bass drums. That's a lot of notes being played, and they all need to match up, and you need to know, you kind of need to know what you're doing and do it well to sound good. Right. Well, and the, and the other part of that is, you're moving around the field and you may not all be together in the same area. And it's knowing that give and take of where the tempo needs to be of, okay, I'm in the, I'm on the front hash and this part of the drum line's behind me. So I'm probably, I'm going to be listening back to them and I'm not going to be playing on the front of the beat as much. I'm going to be listening and maybe playing a little bit on the back of the beat. There's just this whole push and pull that happens with it. That's, it's really challenging, but so much fun. Challenging, so much fun. You've got to have a really, really good ear and you've got to listen because there's a guy walking around, you know, with a little radio at those competitions. And he's like, okay, snare drum number two, you missed that. Oh, oh that, that, that attack was bad on downbeat three of that second measure. Like, they they pick that stuff apart. Yeah, but I do. love that so much. I love Yo, it. Yeah, I do. I, I will remember that season because you guys went to a competition and I was not able to go with you. I think I was actually at a competition with another drumline. And I got a phone message later that night from my former teacher, Tim Howard, who is like a legend in the Atlanta drumline community. Just amazing. And he said, hey, I judged uh, Milton High School today. And that's one of the best drumlines I think I've ever heard. He said, they sounded so good, man. I And, and I, I still, to this day have so much pride for in a tiny way being connected to you guys because you were so good. Well, and I don't know if you know this or not, but I, I do remember you, like you, you wrote our book uh, and you weren't there because you had a, a previous engagement, but we took home high drums on that competition. I did not realize that. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah you, it was it was one of those things where I every time I would come into the rehearsal, I would just try to think of ways to challenge you guys because you just 
everything you guys did, you just knew how to do it really, really well. Well, it was great. You know, and you, you got guys like Adam Slowinski, who was just, uh, that, that dude was just a monster, even in high school. And, you know, you got, you know, me and Adam and um, another buddy of mine, Chris Meeks, was on Snare. And, man, we were just, you, I'll, I'll say this, man, you, whenever you talk, you, you would push us to a different level and just, like, it would just be burning in our forearms, but it would feel so dang good, and it would sound so good that when we got done, man, I was just like, what the heck just happened? <laughs> you know, it, it was it was just magic. And, you know, talking about those that don't know anything about Drumline, that, um, that maybe that may listen to this, the cleanliness mm-hmm. of, of the drums, um, the tuning of the drums. Um, but the, the cleanliness part of it is just having a clean... Like if you're doing an open five stroke roll, man, it, it needs to sound like one drum. Yeah, like one person, just one is solid sound. It. What do you think that marching band or rudimental drumming in general has done for your drum set playing? Has it has it made obviously it made your chops stronger, but did it change your approach to anything, uh, or do you consider it to be a very separate thing on its own? Man, that's a that's a great great question, Brad. Um, so rudimentally. I pretty much memorized the the whole. What what is it? Is it is it thirty two thirty two rudiments? Is is that what it is on the page? It's the PAS forty. Yeah, the PA, rudiments. Yeah. Just knowing all those and knowing how to play them. Probably if there was a change for me, you know, kit and rudimentally, um, you had us play traditional. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, when I play kit, uh, I play matched just because that's just my preference and I can just grew better that way but on drumline playing traditional it it, it it felt more natural to me playing it that way because mm-hmm. it did match that makes sense yeah absolutely um but but taking that rudimentally I, I don't really i don't really see it as separate from me because i incorporated dynamics from what i learned in drumline and applied it to my kit playing um you know and i i, I try to play with finesse you know and not be that drummer that's just overpowering everybody now obviously if when my wife listens back to this she's going to say well you do get loud sometimes <laughs> but like if, if i do get excited you know i mean that's that's just i guess that's just natural instinct for any drummer but you know and then i'm kind of like oh i need to pull it back a little bit but the dynamic part of it the way that i hold drumsticks um you know and i use 7a like uh, i use 5a for a long time um and then before that, I used 5B. Um, I tried 2B one time, and I'm like, man, telephone poles and don't work good on drum kit. Like, yeah. So explain. So explain to the folks that aren't drummers your drumstick of choice. What is that as far as the weight? Is it a light stick, a heavy stick? Yeah. So my, I, I like 7A, and I like for years I played nylon tip, and you got a little more definition on the ride um, and the cymbals and and the the chick on the on the hi-hat but switching to wood tip i i like the definition and the more warmth that i get mm-hmm. from a wood tip so yes a 7a is a thinner drumstick it's lighter um and it's it's weird that the lower the number you go on a drumstick the fatter the the wood is yeah or, or the diameter is bigger I think, too, as we were talking about that whole precision element of marching band, understanding that blocking in with each other, there's a lot of value in being in a 
group like that because when then when you start playing in a band it really opens up your ears to listening to what's going on around you to lock in with the guitar player or the bass player or whatever instrumentation you have it, being a drumline for me helped me understand the active part of listening instead of just playing you know 100 percent, because there's so much going on around you and there's there's there are so many dynamics being in a drum core and being in drum line. Like you have certain stick heights you have to play at, and you know you're either at level three, which is just you know maybe a couple inches above the drum head, six inches is you know a little higher, and then nine, and then twelve. You know twelve is full height. So you there's times when you when you are playing really loud, and there's times where you're just playing with a lot of finesse. But being able to have an ear and listen and uh, and that there, there are times where you just need to adapt to what's going on around you. But but talking about listening, and I think you and I talked about this, or we talk about it a lot, is establishing a kick pattern on a song. Like you, that that's that's huge for you, and it's huge for me because I like consistency, you know. And I, there have been times where you know we'll establish a kick pattern on a on a country tune or whatever we're playing, and then we may mix it up a little bit, or we may start and. You may, like, you don't even have to tell me. You can switch it up on the bass of what you want it to be. And then, you know, I'm like, okay. You know, and I'll like, give you a nod and be like, yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. You know, I, always, I like trying to mix it up on the verse. I play a different kick pattern on the verse and then play a different kick pattern on the chorus. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm the same way. And I typically, I like to lock in with whatever pattern, you know, not play much more than what you're playing on your bass drum. Right. I just think that that's, you know, if you and I were, if we were going to go out for a walk with each other, we would establish the, the tempo of our pace. And typically our steps would be in line with each other. And we're building that from the ground up. And I think the groove is kind of the same way. You're building the groove from the ground up and it starts with the bass drum and the bass guitar. And once that rhythm is established with each other everything else can sit on top of it 100 percent, man and i just totally had a flashback to your basement i'll never forget and man i would it would just it would just be me and you and you you had a, a little white remo kit i think it was a remo mm -hmm. drum kit that you had it was white it might have been remo but anyway and you would get over there with your bass and we would lay down like a like either a four bar groove or eight bar groove and then we would just stop on the last downbeat and then just wait and then come back in. It was just like we it was almost telepathic because you knew you knew what I was going to do and I knew what you were going to do. And, and we would come back in. Um, but, dude, that really helped my timing a lot. Absolutely. It helped mine, too. And being, able, being able to do that and just stop and come back in on. Well, and, and it's and it's a twofold thing. Right. So it to me, it's like it's one thing to have decent time but it's another thing to have decent time while someone else has their own <laughs> internal metronome right so us understanding where each other's tempo is and then finding how to meld that together that's when to me that's where the magic happens you okay. know yeah so, and that actually is funny. It leads into the next thing I was going to bring up is that for that period of time after that, uh, you and I played all over Georgia and then up and down the East Coast with a group called Liberty. An amazing experience for me. I'm sure it was for you as well. I just love it and, and so thankful that I got to do it. And one of the things that we were doing really early on, we were essentially playing with a click and playing with stems, which... 
that is that was very early on with that happening. And and for those that are listening that may not understand what that is, is that you have a, a core band and then you have a set of tracks that were recorded ahead of time, additional tracks of guitars, harmonica, fiddle, steel guitar, whatever it may be. And the band is essentially locked in with that playing along with the arrangement of the song. And look, whether we love it or hate it, that whole thing's not going away, and it's everywhere now. It's in church. You can't go hear a live band anymore. You can't go hear a a touring artist, at least a lot of them, that aren't playing with stems, with pre-recorded tracks. And I was curious, as you look back on that early part of kind of formative playing for you, how did playing with a click prepare you for your career as a live and session drummer? Yeah, man, that's that's another good question, man. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that you that you asked that. Playing playing with a click metronome, and there were times playing with a click that you know I'd lay down a groove and I'd reach over and you know if you're playing a groove at like 120, you know just laying it down, I'd reach over and hit stop and keep the groove going, and then reach over and hit start and see where I fell within the the click pattern. And I did that a lot to try to you know. To help my ear and um that it, it, it and it also helped me on you know live gigs where maybe they wanted more of a not less structured feel you know and just kind of be more loose and a little more open about it but having that experience playing with the click track really helped my eternal clock mm-hmm. and really holding good time i, I guess it, it's almost embedded in you and you know it almost is like hey this song is at 120 and you can you can count it off and and, and go with it but um leading up to that what you know you're talking about stems you know playing with a click track and a guide vocal that was a whole nother um error for me playing uh when we did the whole first baptist alpharetta thing because we did that for Gosh, four and a half, five years maybe. That was that was a whole different thing for me too, because I'd never played that kind of music and never had a woman telling me what to do in my ear and where to play. You know, yeah, it's really? not at least not one that you weren't married to, right? <laughs> yeah, man. But a lot of drummers are scared to play with a click because sure. they, they, you know, it's just like it's foreign to them. Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, look, it's it's like I said, it's not going away. And no. look, if I had my preference on it, I would not play with one. There are situations where you sessions, certain live things, church, you're going to be playing with one, yeah. and just knowing how to how to use the click as use it to your advantage instead of as something that's holding you back from what you're wanting to do. Yeah, it's a big thing. One one hundred percent. And 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 talking about the whole church. You know, playing with a click and stems. Like I've been playing with a click for so long now that I mean, it's just it, it's to the point now where I play with a click track so much that it just gets buried in the stems and the mix. You know, and whenever the click gets buried, you, you know you're pretty much you know you're pretty much driving the bus.
I wanted to ask you about your time touring with the group uh, Gold City and when that was and how that all happened. The, what was the process of you getting hired to play with them? And then we can talk about musically what that experience was like. But how did when and how did you get in that group? Yeah, so that was uh, that was 2008. Um, we had just ended the the whole Liberty era. Um, I think you had left, and then I I left shortly after you. Um, and then I left Liberty, and then went um, and played for a group called the Diplomats. They were out of Carrollton, Villarica yeah, great area. group. Corey Pearson, fantastic bass player. Yeah, great singer. Um, they just had a great great group. And my buddy Jason Singleton was playing drums at the time with them, who, by the way, um, was Ricky Skaggs front of house guy for a little while. Oh, wow. Yeah. I so did not know was, that. Uh, and now he was, he's toured with Sierra Hall. Just, just some small names. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 So, oh, that was a rabbit trail. Sorry. So Jason Singleton left Diplomats. I went and played for the Diplomat. This is all tying in. So when Jason left, it was pretty much a plug and play because I'd already subbed a little bit for Jason after I left Liberty, um, and it was just, it was just a just a natural fit for me to be a part of that. Lamar Newton was playing piano. Oh man, yeah, I have I have a lot of love and respect for Lamar. Great musician. Great musician. Great feel. Good quartet man. Knows how to play Southern gospel. Mm-hmm. Um. But anyway, we had just a killer band, man, and everything was live, like no tracks. It was all, it was bass, drums, keys, uh, and that's it, bass, drum, okay. and keys. And it was, it. we were doing hints and stuff, and man, we were, well, they called them old barn burners. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but during that whole diplomat um, time, that that came to an end. Um and Corey, I'll never forget, I was working for, I was working for Equifax. No, I was working for a company called Xerox Connect on their help desk doing tech support for um, West Coast sales team for um, Equifax Credit Bureau. And my phone rang, little old Nokia looked at it and said, Corey Pearson. And I, I picked up the phone and I called him Coco. I said, what's up, Coco? He said, man, what's, what's going on? I said, man, I'm, I'm at work. I Said, let me step outside and call you back because I have good reception. So I stepped outside and I, I gave I called him back and I said, Hey man, what's going on? He said, Listen, he said, You're not gonna believe this and he said, You probably think I'm telling you a story, but he said, Gold City's putting the band of gold back together and they're auditioning drummers and I put your name in that and I was just like, Well, okay. <laughs> uh that's that's quite an honor because those that have fathered followed Southern Gospel music know that Doug Riley, uh, the late Doug Riley, passed away in 2005, um, had that, like, that was his, he played drums for Gold City, because his dad was Tim Riley, right. he was one of the founding members, and then his brother was Daniel, who's still singing with him, but, um, like, I had some big shoes to fill, man. Man, yeah, he was a great drummer. I remember, I remember us playing on some festivals or something with him. They were great. And he was a great drummer. Killer band, great drummer, just just a fantastic guy, killer songwriter, wrote some really, really good Southern Gospel tunes as well. But, uh, so he's like, hey, he said, you need to go try out. He said, tryouts are in Gadsden, Alabama. That's where they were from. And I said, well, I said, let me, I said, when are they? He said, well, they're going to be on a, on a Monday evening. I'm like, okay, well, I'm putting in time. Obviously, I'm going to take time off to try out for this group. So, putting in the time, or time off, drove up to gas. I think I left on that Sunday night, so I'll be there 
for Monday because it was like a like a 9 a.m. downbeat for rehearsal. And, and I went in there, and some of the some of the songs that I had to play were like Midnight Cry, um, Don't Let the Glory Roll on the Roll is called it. Uh, like some of their biggest hits. And they used Nashville guys, and they played with stems, going back to stem tracks. And some of the drummers that played on their stuff, like I had their click track in my ear from the studio. So just to give you an idea of, of who I had in my ear, this is kind of a rabbit trail. Uh, Jerry Croon. Wow. Um, I think Lonnie Wilson may have played on some of their stuff. Um, I want to say that maybe Steve Brewster might have played on Steve Brewster played on a lot of Gold City stuff, too. What a drummer. Yeah. But, so, anyway, I I went and and we played some of their tunes, and um, I left and made good friends with the keyboard player, Josh Simpson, at the time. And they called me back in a couple of weeks, and they were like, hey, you got the gig. I'm like, holy moly. Okay. Um, So, I, uh, (laughs) I hit the road, man. And that was during a time where I was furloughed at work because that was right around, um, that was late 07, early 08, because 07 is when the whole market just yeah. bottomed out and just crashed. And I was working at Midway Building Supply at the time, and they had us on furlough days, and there were days I weren't, wasn't even working. So they're like, okay, we're, we're going out. And they say, now listen, we leave on Wednesday night, and they, sometimes we don't get home till Monday or Tuesday. You know, I'm like, let's go. So let's go. I, so I did that, and that was unbelievable. It was an amazing experience. I bet it was great exposure I, for me too. Did it, was it all over the U.S.? It was. was it wow? Yeah, yeah man. It was Branson, Missouri, Texas, Oklahoma, Alabama, Missouri. Like just um, the furthest, furthest. Well, I say all over the, the state. The furthest west that we went was, I think, Texas. But um, we. We were going to get to play the Opry and the Wobash Cannonball. Oh, sorry, that's the song. Um, <laughs> we were going to get to play the Opry, and it, it just didn't work out. But if I, that's always been my dream, man. Yeah. Is, I think any country music absolutely you know, dreams play the Opry. So, sure. We, we were. We were going to get to do that, and things just didn't work out. And they pulled the plug on the band because that promoters were, didn't have the funds to pay for the band. And then they went to canned music, and it just it, it just it kind of it kind of just fizzled away. Like nobody got like, "Hey, you're fired, you're done." You know, it just kind of it, it 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 fell apart, not in a bad way, but like one would drop off here, one would drop off there, just because it it just yeah. it, it was over. You know, and, you know. And I don't, I don't, I, and I have to admit, I don't, I don't really know much of the current scene of the Southern gospel world, but are a lot of groups, big groups touring with bands anymore, or is it pretty much all tracks now? There's one, man, there's only a handful. Kingdom Airs, who are, uh, they play at Dollywood. They are, they have a live band, but they, they have stems, but, um, Jason Crabb's carrying a live band. I'll bet they're great. Oh my gosh! Um, and then, man, that's that's all I can think of off the top of my head that still carries a live band because yeah. But back in the day, if you talked about bringing drums into a little old Southern Baptist church, they'd actually leave. Yeah. 
know? Well, and, and, and I would, you know, we were talking earlier about you. Not only do I consider you one of the best drummers I've played with, you're also one of the softest drummers that I've played with. And we've played in a lot of different kinds of venues, but we've also played in a whole bunch of living rooms together. <laughs> and volume has never been an issue. And, and I didn't think about it until you just said that, but I imagine playing in those small churches for so many years, you learned how to play soft because if you played loud, they would let you know. <laughs> yeah, subtle. The, the, the fingers would be in the ears, you know, subtle as a chainsaw. They'd be letting you know that it was too loud. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> I, I remember that reminds me of one story. We pulled up one time in the bus and, and Jerry Baker was driving the bus one time, uh, at the time and you know, in the driver's seat, there was that little sliding window that you could slide open to your left It was to talk to somebody that came up to the side of the bus, or at least talk to the driver. And the pastor of the church had met us there to unlock the door to let us in to set up. But before he let us in, he came and knocked on the side of the bus, and he's, Jerry slid the little window open, and he said, Yes, sir, so can I help you? He said, I was just wondering. He said, Y'all got drums on that bus? <laughs> yes, sir. We sure do. He says, we don't allow drums in our church. Jerry says, well, we ain't singing here tonight. Y'all have a good one. And we left. Sure did. I'm like, really? Yeah. I mean, you, you either get the whole package or you don't, you know, like <laughs> that's, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I know. So yeah. uh, he, yeah. he's, oh, we left and I don't think they ever called. I don't think they ever tried to rebook us. Yeah. We're not going to, we're not going to play the old gospel ship with a cajon. <laughs> That's right. Playing on spoons. Oh gosh, that's funny. Wow. <laughs> well, and it's it's funny how their drums are such a visual instrument, and people just see them and just automatically think loud. It's yep. just volume. That's the that's the first thing that comes to mind. And hey, it's like, don't be that way. Yeah, it's it's funny, you know. And then they'll see them, and they'll be, you know, there's always going to be that. That uh, no offense, to old people. I love old people, but I am the, one now. Yeah, yeah I understand. On the, you know, be, little old lady have her fingers in her ears, and, and then afterwards, th- this part always got me. Afterwards, you know, we would always be at the record table, <laughs> greeting everybody, and and they'd always come up to me and they'd say, "Man, you sure played good piano tonight." I'm like, "Well, <laughs> thanks, thank you, <laughs> yeah." Thank you for noticing. <laughs> Thanks for noticing. Yeah. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is thinking about my formative years as a musician, how many people that were older than me that took the time to mentor me, whether that was Tommy Dodd that we both played with, Mike Johnson, Bill Cunningham, Jerry Braswell, all these people that we've been lucky to play with. Um did you get to experience that too? Just people that hired you to play and 
kind of showed you the ropes of the music world? <laughs> Man, oh gosh, I miss Tommy Dodd so bad. Um, what what an honor it was to get to make music with him. Um, and and you kind of you actually introduced me to him. And man, I remember I was thinking about this the other day. It's funny how when you start talking about it, you start remembering it all of a sudden. But I remember the first, I think one of the first times I ever played with Tommy Dodd was at the Holiday Inn in Marietta and mm-hmm. some kind of ballroom there or something. There was, I don't know what was going on that day, but that's the first time I'd ever met Tommy Dodd. So you and I met Tommy on the same day. So I don't know if you remember this. We went and played. There was a benefit for a guy named Sandy Alvarado. Yep. And it was over off of Wendy Hill Road, Marietta. And it was me and you, Bill Cunningham, and Sid Manley was playing guitar. I don't know if you remember Sid Manley, the great Sid Manley on guitar. Wow. And Tommy sat in and played with us that day right. when we played our set. Man, we had a good little set worked up. I don't remember if we, I don't know if you remember, we did City Lights, that old Ray Price thing. It was so good. Bill sounded so good. And then Tommy played with us that day and we exchanged information and that's that's because of that was that's how i started playing with him i totally forgot that and you i think you and i we either met up and followed each other or rode together i can't remember but that's exactly right yeah me and you were were that's the first time we ever met tommy around 2000 yeah but yes just just getting to get to share the stage with those guys and jerry braswell lord we could we could talk another hour just about what he's done and who he's oh, played man. for. Yeah. Um, and and they look they they could have been they could have looked down their nose at us youngsters that we didn't know what we were doing and, and we probably didn't. But you it's, know why they didn't though? Because we did know what we were doing because <laughs> we had a passion for what we were doing. Yeah, that was it. That's exactly why. Now you're exactly right. And yeah. where where I've where I may have lacked in uh, ability, I made up for in passion for it. You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> those guys, the just they they just those pioneers uh, that came before us, that generation before us, that just. I learned, I got a music education playing with those guys that I, you, you couldn't pay a, a bunch of money for because they, man, they, they mentored us big time and just by being themselves, man, I, we, we were really lucky. Listen, you, you will always be my favorite too. Number one, my favorite singer in the whole world and my favorite bass player. And just, man, you make it easy and it was like they didn't have to work and they didn't have to worry about what was going on behind them, you know? And yeah. that's like that. I just, I just had to share that, man. Cause it was, we, we knew what we wanted it to, what we wanted it to sound like. And we gave it to them to the best of our ability. That's it. And, and, and look, we, if there's one thing I can say about you and I playing with each other is that we always played it with our heart. Yeah. That is for sure. It was always, Playing these, uh, trying to, and I, I think maybe the better way I can say it is, it was always trying to honor what came before us. Yes, yep. Um, and that that the mu that music is important, and it's important to be played the right way. Yeah, you know. And it'll probably be a while. Well, I hope it's not a while before we play again. But like when we did the thing with Brian Jarrett and coming, how long had it been since you and I had played together? Oh, and it was like time. we, 
like you know you know being friends for so long with somebody you know you just pick up where you left off and it just it, it's just it just happens i mean you 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 played about five seconds to dial in some sounds and I'm like, oh, yeah, there it is. That pocket that I'm so accustomed to playing in. Uh, and it was just like, it's like getting back on the grooviness bicycle you've ever been on, man. That's the way it felt. Yeah. And, uh, and man, I hadn't played. I probably hadn't played in close to a year when we played together that night. And I felt so rusty. But you, it was just, it was so easy. You made it so easy. I appreciate it. And, and, uh, you know, it was just great. Of course, I, I would hate to end this and, and not mention um, the, the current little music um, journey I'm on now with my brother-in-law, Scott Brantley, and my wife, Tina, who is a fantastic singer, um, you know, and talking about inspiring. She inspires me. And, you know, having that support, you know, Lisa supports what you do musically. Tina supports me, um, you know, and then, you know, you... Scott and you are, you know, y'all remind me of each other because he, he has a heart for that the country music and uh, he sings good tunes and really, really good guitar player, great singer. Um, and it's just, I'm, as long as I'm alive and as long as the good Lord lets me have both of my feet functioning in my hands and, you know, keeps, keeps my hearing good, man, I'm always going to be playing. And just um, knowing you and your friendship, um, like, man, it's, it's, the, not many people can count on one hand how many true friends that they really have. Mm, and I can yeah. I can honestly say that you are one of those. And I, I don't have a lot of best friends that I can pick up, pick up the phone and call and talk to if I need to. And I feel like I can call you in the middle of the night and just say, hey, Brad, I need you, brother. I know you're 1,400 miles away, but <laughs> you'd probably figure out a way to do something and I make it work. I certainly would. Absolutely. And the, and the feeling's mutual. So. I don't know. I, I, I don't know if there's... I don't know if there's anything that's left that I need to say or need to ask you, man. I think that I think we should just leave it right there because, you know, man, you you mean so much to me, both as a as a human being and as a musician. I have so much respect for you. Well, man, I I feel the same way with you, and so, man, I've enjoyed just talking to you, and I really hope that this is part one of three or four more. You're the best storyteller and the funniest dude I know. So we, we got to do some more of this. <laughs> and, and we need one about old Kevinisms and, and just that's a whole other episode in itself. That's exactly that's exactly right. Yeah, it won't it won't be a month of Sundays before we do it. <laughs> Lord, Lord willing, and the Greek don't rise. We'll be back. <laughs> that's exactly right. Well, I love you, buddy, and I appreciate it. And. Uh, Let's do it again. I love you, Brad. Thanks, man. All right. Thanks for listening to The Bandwitch Tapes. I'm your host, Brad Williams. The show's theme is called Playcation and was written by Mark Mundy. Drop me a line at the email address, thebandwitchtapes at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe to receive new episodes of the podcast. And while you're at it, please tell someone else about the show. Thanks for listening.